Please be seated. Our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. It's on page 978 if you happen to be using one of the Pew Bibles. Let me say again, if you're someone in need of a Bible, if you don't have a Bible and a translation that is easy to read and makes good sense, then please uh, feel free to take one of ours with you. As you're turning there, Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14, uh, let me just remind us, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians, and we've been looking at Ephesians for quite a while now. Um, And each week as we look at a different part of this letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus, we've been asking this question, what does this say to us about what it means for us to become a community of grace? What does it say to our church about what it means for us as a group of people, a body of believers, to become more and more a community that's really marked by grace? We've seen in the first half of this book how Paul lays this foundation of the sovereign hand of God that brought us to faith, working behind all things in our lives, drawing us to himself. And then we've moved in the second half of the book to Paul switching to now, given that theological basis, what does it mean for us now to live lives in line with this gospel that we've been called to. We've seen the last couple weeks in particular uh, that Paul's instructions and exhortations are getting increasingly uncomfortably direct and pointed. Uh, A few weeks ago we talked about how the gospel impacts our speech. Last week we talked about what does it mean that the gospel comes in and impacts our anger and this morning we're going to look at what does it mean that the gospel comes in and impacts our sexuality. And in each of these things, we've seen that the gospel is actually intensely relevant, that it comes in and is hammered against the actual contours of our lives, that it really is meant to come and bring change. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, before we look at our text here in Ephesians 5, let's, let's come together uh, to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, come before you this morning in need of a word from you. We pray ask that you would speak to us, and we pray this boldly, knowing that you promised to do just that for us in Scripture through your Spirit. And Lord, we affirm, as Scripture says, that you have spoken us to us most clearly in the person of your Son, Jesus. You have appeared before us, and so we pray that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would comfort us, that you would humble us, that you would draw near to us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's look at our text this morning, again, verses 3 through 14. But all sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. 
Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Um, there's a commentator named Tom Wright, and in his commentary on the, on the book of Ephesians, he, he opens this section with this story. He says, when I went to college, um, first day of college, I'm, I'm walking through the gates, and there's this huge sign um, you know, strung up between the archway, and it says, sex. And then it said, now that I've got your attention, you should really join the crew club. And he goes on to say that that didn't have anything to do with the crew club, but there was something powerful about just seeing that plastered, you know, as he walks through the, through the gates of the school. Now, he read that on the sign, it didn't have anything to do with sex. Now, we're reading this passage, and it has everything actually to do with sex. That actually is what we're talking about this morning. Uh, and you guys are all scared to smile. It's really kind of funny to see from up here. Well, here's the thing. We're going to be talking about um, this topic from this passage of Scripture this morning. And like our talk about speech and about anger, this is intensely relevant for all of us. Okay, now, here is Paul's assumption, I would say, for us. For the people in this room, for our church, for us as a group of people, that our hearts are filled with, distracted by, run by, disordered sexuality. It affects all of us. That's Paul's assumption. He says that this, this passage, he said, it speaks for anyone who's ever lived in a college dorm. It's for anybody that's ever walked by the magazine rack in the grocery store. It's for anybody that's ever had internet access in your dorm room while you were all alone. And it's for anyone who's ever been up late at night flipping through the TV channels. It's for anybody who's ever been lonely. It's for anyone who's ever been out of town on a trip, alone, anonymous, and tempted. It's for anybody who's ever been on a date, had a good time, and just didn't want to say goodnight. It's for anyone who's ever been on a date, had a good time, and didn't say goodnight. It's for anyone who's ever tried to be good and realized somehow that you just can't be. Okay, this passage tells us this, that the gospel is good news for our disordered sexuality, for all the ways this runs rampant in our life. So we're going to look at a few things this morning. First, we're going to talk about what's at stake. Look with me in verses 5 through 6. Excuse me, let's start with 3, 3 and 5. Look at the terms that Paul uses here. Verse 3, but sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Then verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's take a look first at those terms. The same list of three terms shows up in verse 3 and in verse 5. It talks about sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Okay, sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, which sounds familiar, right? We get words like pornography from this. And the word means any kind of sexual intercourse, any kind of sexual involvement outside of the bounds for which God's created our sexuality. Okay? In other words, it's saying that this is addressing anything outside of the relationship of a marriage between a man and a woman. Okay, to put it that baldly. That's, that's Paul's assumption about, and his teaching about what, what God says our sexuality is for, the right context for that. So this term he says, sexual immorality, it's anything other than that. 
those things taking place in any other kind of relationship, any other spin than that particular one. He says that God has created the context for marriage, and he says that we need to walk in line with that. So sexual immorality. Second term there, he says impurity. Literally, it's uncleanness. And he sort of, it, it, it broadens the term there, right? Not only sexual acts, but anything associated with it that brings uncleanness. Now, have you ever had, maybe you've said these words, or you've at least thought them. You've been around something, you've participated in something, you've done something, and you walked away and thought, I just feel dirty. Okay, and that's what Paul's talking about. All uncleanness. All impurity. And then he goes on for this interesting third one in the list. He says covetousness. Another way to translate that is greed. Okay, coveting. It's the language of addiction. It's a greedy desire for what we don't have. Okay, now this could be a host of things. Um, this is, in fact, the Tenth Commandment, right, where God says, um, don't covet. And he, in the Ten Commandments, it, it lists all kinds of things. Don't, don't covet your, your neighbor's horse or his carriage or his house or his wife. Okay, don't covet. That means, um, what could it be? It could be an iPod that you don't have. It could be a sports car. It could be a retirement account. It could be a relationship, a house, a career. What does Paul say right here? Or it could be another person. In this list of things that he says stay away from, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, this greed not just for a thing, but for another person and what that person is going to give you. He goes on in verse 5 to say that coveting, he says, which is idolatry. Think about what, how baldly poignant that statement is. Everything that you go after, everything that, um, that distracts your heart from following God, everything that you long for with all your being, what does he say? He says that's actually idolatry. That's actually putting yourself into the service of something other than God. If you read through the Bible, you see that every time God's people fall under the grip of idolatry, what does it do? It promises them freedom, but instead of freedom, it actually leads them into slavery. We see it time and again in Scripture. We spent all summer talking about the book of Judges, where we see God's people bowing down to very literal idols being distracted from their worship of God and being enslaved by those and actually driven further away from God because of the things that have gotten a hold of their hearts. Paul says when you fall into this, you're falling into worshiping an idol, something that grabs the affections of your heart and tears them away. Now these three terms together, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, taken together, they, they look at everything that brings any kind of sexual impropriety. Okay, now, again, driving us back to idols. What is it that fuels our hearts? What are our hearts hungering for? Paul's list here doesn't just speak uh, to these people in the church in Ephesus. It speaks into our own condition. It speaks into our own disordered sexuality. Paul's writing this warning to people who really struggle. And he's writing it to us. Now, that might mean um, a host of different things in our lives. Just as we talked about speech and about anger... Different things grab our hearts differently. We all struggle in different ways to different degrees. We all need correction in our speech. We all need our anger addressed. Some of us are a little angry. Some of us are burning with anger. As we look at this topic this morning, for some of us, there are issues in our life that need to be looked at. Um, for others of us, there are issues in our life that have consumed our lives. 
Okay, so whether your struggle is the occasional wandering glance, the occasional wandering thought, whether your struggle here is sleeping around or only thinking about it, whether your life is um, relatively calm or whether your life is sexually out of control. And that's some of us. Can't keep track of the number of people that I've slept with. I can't be in my dorm room by myself without the tractor beam of internet pornography grabbing a hold of me and sucking me in. Can't even be alone without that happening. Or my thoughts are completely out of control. I'm not acting on them externally, maybe, but I walk through my days completely distracted by my desires, my thoughts, my lusts. Wherever we are on this, Paul speaks into us, speaks to us and says, the gospel has something to do with our sexuality. It came to bring real light and real change. Some of us are thinking, I'm scared. If people around me knew what was really going on in my life or really going on in my head, they would run away in terror. Now, all of us are thinking, if we could put up on the big screen up here all the thoughts of our past week in any area, we would all go diving for cover under the chair because we would all feel like people who have been exposed. And Paul says that he wants us to feel exposed, that the gospel wants to feel us exposed because it's going to do something to us. And we're going to see what that is in just a minute. Now let's see what the passage says about sexuality from God's perspective. This is verses 5 and 6. It says some pretty strong things. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's harsh and strong language. What does he say? For people whose lives are consumed by this, there is no inheritance in God's kingdom. He reminds him, he says, God's wrath really does come because of these things. Our sexuality run out of control. He calls those engaged in this, he calls us sons of disobedience. Okay, he says, this is what your family is. You're a son of disobedience. You're on the outside. If you remember last week when we talked about anger, we boiled it down and said essentially anger is this, saying I'm against that. And when it speaks about God's wrath here, it's another way of saying God looks at our disordered sexuality and he says I'm against that. That's not the way it's supposed to be. He's saying that a life given over to these things is fundamentally out of line with life in God's family. Okay, now, does that mean that to fall into this is to be this picture of on the outside, under God's wrath? Paul's assumption is that we are all people who struggle. And what he's describing here is not just falling into sin, but being confirmed in your sin. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying people whose lives are given over to this who are turning their backs on God and following lives characterized by this. What does he say? That's a sign of our actual distance from God. Look with me over, for those of you who have your Bible in front of you, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. Paul sheds a little light on this there. He says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immorality, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What's he saying? There is no depth to which we see, which we can sink that God's people haven't sunk. And he says, God has saved you out of those things. It does mean for us that we're people desperately in need of rescue in our sexuality. Whether that's rescue for the first time or us as believers who continue to struggle, that we need to be pulled out of the pit that this leads us to. Now there's something that sounds sort of... a there are probably many things, but there's something that sounds sort of offensive to us about this, um, certainly for a lot of folks at least. Because we look at this and we say, it, it sure sounds like God's getting awfully wound up about something that's really not all that incredibly significant. Okay? In a world where there are wars happening and there's world hunger, you're telling me that God's getting this bent out of shape out of this particular part of our lives. Uh, when my wife and I lived in Philadelphia, there was one advantage in living in a big city in Philadelphia. When you're driving around, you rarely think that you're going to get a speeding ticket. Because you know that the police have bigger fish to fry than you're speeding, right? Because somebody's getting killed on the other side of the city. And you think, I'm relatively safe. Now, when we moved to Williamsburg, <laughs> they have time to give speeding tickets. And all the speeding limits, speed limits are 25 miles an hour. But here's the thing. Sometimes, for some of us, we read a passage like this, and we think God sounds like the guy holding the radar detector on the back road trying to bust you for going 27 in a 25, when on the other end of town, serious crime is happening. What's he doing over here? Why doesn't he care about what's really important? Well, Paul says this is incredibly significant. Now, I started to get my first glimpse of the importance of this whole issue when I was in eighth grade. And there was a school dance. And so I invited this girl from our church uh, to the dance, Dee Dee Carroll. Dee Dee, if you're out there. Okay, now this was one of those. I was the guy who asked the girl that was like way out of his range, asked her out. And her parents probably said, yes, you have to go. Okay, that was the situation. <laughs> so I asked Dee Dee out to go to this dance. And I go to her house to pick her up. I, I blocked this out of my memory, but that must have involved my parents like sitting in the driveway. Wait, so I, I go up and knock on the door, and they invite me into their home, and she's not ready yet, so I sit down. Again, this family goes to our church. I know them. And um, Mr. Carroll is not a small man. And he begins to speak to me, and I just sort of notice behind his shoulder, just casually leaning up against his fireplace, is a rifle. And he's talking to me, and all I see is this gun. He doesn't even mention it, doesn't bring, bring it to attention. But a message was communicated there. And here's what it said. There is something very precious to me. And you should take it very seriously and be very careful with it. And in some ways, that's a picture we have of our God. Words like wrath and talking about him being against it. What's he saying? There is something very precious here that needs to be cared for and defended and looked after. And God says, I'm going to make sure I do that, that I look after it. 
Now, for those of us that this feels too restrictive, this kind of sexual ethic that, that the Bible gives us, uh, the truth is we all have a sexual ethic. We all think there are certain rules to the road that we're going to follow. Okay, now, for some of us, that might be, and certainly this is maybe more prevalent in our culture, if it makes you happy and does not hurt or violate somebody else, then it's okay. But see, the point is, we all have an ethic. We all draw the lines somewhere. God says this is so important that we have to draw the lines in much more closely than that. Everybody believes in a boundary, and here in Scripture we see God who created sexuality. What are the boundaries he's given us? So I guess my question, one of our questions for us is, what is it that's setting the boundaries in this area of your life for you? And is it God's word speaking to us, or is it some other standard? All right, second thing to look at, how should we live? How does this impact us? Look first at verse 3 and 4. And Paul immediately sends us into, of all things, the way that we speak. Um, he says, but sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now some of us are thinking, come on, Paul, you can't be serious. Now you could be thinking that for a variety of reasons. One, you might be thinking, you can't fathom how deeply this whole issue has scarred and gotten a hold of my life right now, and you're worried about how we talk? Let me tell you what you ought to be worried about. Or some of us are thinking, you've never lived on a college campus. Give me a break that you're saying that our language is to be guarded like this. Or you've never been in the military like I have, or you've never worked where I work. Completely impractical. Now here's just one side note about this. Paul is speaking to people who live near and around the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was known around the world for its devotion to the goddess Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the world was the temple to Artemis that stood in the middle of Ephesus. And temple prostitution was a part of the worship there. Paul was stuck in the middle of a world that was as completely off-hinge in its sexuality as ours is. That was as completely impacted by by sexuality gone wild as ours is. Did they have TV? No. But all he had to do was walk down the city streets and see the way that permeated everything, even the religious atmosphere of his city. So we're tempted to think, you've never been on a college campus, you've never been in my work situation. Paul says, there's nothing new under the sun. For those of you that are doing our Ecclesiastes study, there's nothing new under the sun. The world was the same then, and he says that we are to speak rightly. And look at the reasons he gives. Verse 3. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Okay, there are two terms there that are, that are bound to derail a lot of us. Okay, proper. What are, what are the images that come to mind when you think about the word proper? I envision myself at age 11 sitting at the dinner table with my grandparents and being under my grandmother's disapproving eye when I picked up the wrong fork. Okay? It's not proper. Okay? Or, what about um, this? He says it's not proper among saints. Who are the saints? It sounds like famous dead Christians. Or, those who are too prudish to spend time with. Right? The word saint doesn't get much uh, good press in our world either. What does Paul say? What is a saint? A saint is a person 
who's been called into following Jesus. In other words, a saint is a Christian, somebody who's been made holy by Jesus. Okay, so none of us get off the hook here. He says, that's who you are, whether you feel like it or not. That's who he's made you and who he's created you to be. He says, there are some things that are proper and some things that aren't. He goes on in verse 6, talks about this kind of joking. Same idea, he says, um, that these things are out of place. They don't fit. Okay, I hadn't been in, in Williamsburg very long working on campus when I was walking across campus. And I, I looked across the street at the Wawa, okay, little convenience store. And out of the Wawa walks uh, one of the colonial interpreters, you know, in his 17th century garb, carrying this Wawa cup of coffee. And I thought, what kind of crazy place do I live in? You know, it, you, it, just, it just doesn't fit. You look across and you see this guy dressed from one century, and he's very obviously living in another. Or some of you William and Mary students, you guys are confronted with this every day when you cross the street and you walk from old campus, beautiful architecture, college the way you want to envision it, to new campus. Okay, now every public institution has gone through that phase where they didn't have enough money, so they built a bunch of ugly buildings. And that's what happened at William & Mary. You go from old campus to new campus, and it's this beautiful old architecture, and then it's, you know, 1970s block, you know, we're going to save a dime. And you think, it just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. How do these two worlds go together? Paul's point is that this kind of language even, the, the talk that we use, he says it doesn't fit this new life that you've been given. Again, for students, I'm going to offend somebody here. You know what it's like when first semester freshmen are on campus? You can spot them from a mile away, right? There's just something about it because they're still, they're in college now, but their lives are still in high school. And they don't speak William and Mary speak. And they don't know where all the buildings are. And they look a little clueless, okay? What, what happens there? He says they're in college now, but their lives don't fit yet. They don't really reflect the new life they've been brought into. And Paul says again that there's something about our speech now that must fit this life that we've been brought into. You see, our speech reveals, and we've talked about talk, but our speech reveals what we value or don't value. Again, some of us are thinking my problems in this area run much deeper than just what I say. Well, Paul takes this interesting start where he says, let's just talk about our talk. He says, even this must be above reproach. And implied there is, and of course everything else must be as well. That we have to get down to the nitty-gritty parts of our lives, even in the way we talk. Now, what does he say we need to do with that? Okay, as we've talked about each of these topics the last few weeks, we've talked about Paul saying that we have to actually put this off. This is part of your old life. But there's always something to put on. Now, if you spoke to someone, maybe yourself, maybe the person next to you, and said, okay, it's time for you to take off inappropriate speech. What would you put in its place? There are a lot of things you could fit in that slot. Maybe, you know, instead of this inappropriate talk, you should speak words of praise. You know, instead of this inappropriate talk, you should just hold your tongue and be silent. Okay, but what does Paul say? Instead of all this inappropriate talk, what do we replace it with? And he says that we replace it with thanksgiving. He says that thanksgiving is what we replace it with. And not only that, thanksgiving is the antidote to coveting. Okay, because that's what's getting set in parallel here. We've got lives that are consumed by coveting. And what does Paul say instead? Instead, be thankful. Now, what does coveting do? It says, I want, I need, I must have that. 
and I'm going to spend my life around that until I get it. What does Thanksgiving say? It says, God has given me all I need. And instead of saying, I must have, I will say, thank you instead. Coveting says, I demand to be filled. Thanksgiving said, my life is defined by God's provision for me, not by my sense of need and entitlement. He will give me everything I need. Thanksgiving acknowledges, sometimes on faith, that that's true. Thank you instead of I demand. Let's look at some examples. Covenant, I'm lonely, frustrated, angry, scared, and so I will and I deserve to fill myself with pornography or anything else that will warm my heart. Covenant, what does Thanksgiving say? I am lonely, frustrated, angry, scared. Lord, thank you for showing me my heart. You see it more clearly than I do. You are the only one that can sustain me in my loneliness. Thank you for using this moment to show me my need for you right here. Coveting, I am tired of being single. I'm tired of no dates. I'm tired of no interest. I will fill myself on my own terms. Thanksgiving. Lord, you have, been, you have me right where you want me, even if it's not right where I want to be. Thank you for having me in just the right place. Thank you for good friends you've given me, even though no spouse. And what if you don't have that? Even the good friends. Thank you for my dog who loves me when no one else does. (laughs) And what if your dog doesn't love you? Thank you for my goldfish who seem like they like me, at least when I'm feeding them. Okay? (laughs) Wherever it comes, there's a point where we say, "God God is taking care of me and... As small as it might be, I'm going to put my stake in the ground right here and say thank you. Coveting, I'm discontent with my life, my kids, my spouse. There is someone who would better fill my needs. Thanksgiving. Lord, I am discontent, but the truth is that you have given me everything I need. Thank you for this life you've given me, as hard as it is at this moment. Thank you for this spouse you've given me. Thank you for these kids. Thank you for this job. Lord, help my discontent. Forgive me, heal me, meet me. See, Covenant says fundamentally, the entire universe is about me and I will have it go my way. And Thanksgiving says, there are deeper realities in this universe than me. This is God's universe. My relationships, my gifts, my career, my life itself, it's a gift from God and it belongs to God. And I will choose to say thank you addresses this passage, how we speak. It also addresses how we are to walk. Look at this image that Paul brings up for us. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This is another variation on what Paul's been saying throughout this. Earlier he said, essentially you're a new person. He said, put off the old person, put on the new person. That's what's been done to you. Now live in that. You were an old person, now you're a completely different person. Here he says, you were darkness. You were consumed by darkness. But he says, when Christ came into your life and saved you, you became light. And you need to walk as children of the light. This new identity that we've been called back to. We're no longer, in the terms that Paul used, sons of disobedience, but now children of light. And then in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. What do children of the light do? They live in light of their father and respond to him. Now, 
there's one thing that we need to address. Interesting translation here. When it says um, in verse 7, Therefore do not associate with them, these sons of disobedience. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Okay, it brings up the question, how do we relate to other people around us? And Paul here says, don't associate with the people around you. Now, there's a better translation than that. Associate gives us these um, images of, I can't even be around other people. And that's not at all what Paul is saying. A better way of translating this is, do not partner with the people around you. Don't go the same way they're going. Don't hold yourself to the same ends, the same ambitions as the people around you. Don't align yourself with somebody in a way that, it's, that you're going to actually fall into the same things. Jesus and even Paul earlier makes it very clear that we are to live in this world. Listen to what, what Jesus says, John 17, 15. Jesus is praying for his people and he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one that you take care of them in the middle of this very dark and fallen world. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's bringing up a similar issue. He says this, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But listen to what he says then. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In context, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's saying anybody who claims to be a Christian and be following Christ that in their life is running completely a different direction. He says you're not even to associate with that because you don't want people to think, essentially part of the reason, you don't want people to think that that's what Christianity is. But what does he say? I'm not talking about the people in the world, the people that are in your college dorm. I'm not talking about the people you work with. I'm not talking about your neighbors. He said I'd have to take you out of the world to spare you that. What does he say? Don't partner with them. Don't go in the same direction. That doesn't mean don't know them, don't love them, don't be a part of their lives. Interesting conversation came up um, a few weeks ago when there, uh, Kyle had a, a parents meeting for our junior and senior high parents. And as I heard the story, they got an interesting conversation as a part of that meeting that basically had to do with this. We want our kids... Um, to know friends in their school that don't know Jesus. But sometimes that's really messy because of all the things that exposes our children to. So what do we do with that? Do we run away and hide? Do we move to Montana, build tall fences, borrow Mr. Carroll's gun? What do we do? Those are good questions to wrestle through. But what Paul is saying, he's not saying don't associate with them. Don't pull your life out of theirs. He's saying, don't go in the same direction. So I certainly don't have an easy answer to that, but as you talk through your high school, this through with your high school kids, or as you think about it yourself, Paul says, walk in the light. And are you walking in the light in those relationships in such a way that light is actually shining? He goes on to say, um, in verse 11, that we are to expose darkness rather than participate in it. This whole last section deals with this question. How can we then as Christians shine in the world around us? Expose the darkness around you rather than participating in it. Now when we talk about exposing darkness, a couple different pictures might come to mind. Uh, One might be the way we most usually uh, experience stuff like this in our world, investigative reporting. You turn on the TV and what do you often see? Uh, whether that's you know Stone Phillips on Dateline, 
or uh, you know the CNN headlines on the web page as you look at it, or the front page of the paper. Stuff that's getting raked up, darkness that's being exposed, for essentially often our entertainment, or to sell a newspaper, or to rile up our righteous indignation over something that we can't possibly even speak to because it doesn't really affect directly our everyday lives. But there's something about us that just loves the bad news, that just loves to read the story about uh, the guy who was finally brought to light and busted for all the wrong things that he was doing. Okay? Muckraking still exists. And what does Paul say? Is this what it means to expose the darkness around it? Another image for those of you uh, that remember the, remember the Crocodile Dundee movies? Unfortunately, there was more than one of these, and I think it might have been in a sequel. But there's this scene, Crocodile Dundee, Australian guy. Okay, uh, He's in Australia, and it's night, and you come down the long dusty road comes this Jeep with all kinds of bright lights fixed to the front of it that are turned off. And there's guys in there drinking and yelling, and they're just having a good time, and they come racing down the road, and they stop at this field. And suddenly, you know, they're throwing liquor bottles, and suddenly what do they do? They flip on all of their lights, and this huge beam of light goes into the field where there are these kangaroos grazing in the middle of the night. And then they pull out their rifles and begin to shoot them. Now, Crocodile Dundee comes to the rescue. But what's happening there? bringing exposure and bringing light in order to bring death. Now, the people around you think that's what you're about. Okay, the world around us thinks that's the agenda of Christians. We're going to throw on the lights, bring out the rifles, and we're going to start shooting. That's what the people on your hall think. That's what your coworkers are afraid of. And part of the reason they think that is because it's happened to them before. Now, when Paul says, don't participate in the deeds of darkness, instead exposing them, what kind of exposure is he talking about? There's another kind of exposing, and maybe here's another image for us. What happens when you go to a doctor, and you're not feeling well, and he has to run tests? Then he comes back in the room, and he sits down and talks to you and says, let me tell you about what's going on with your body. What's he doing? He's exposing you. He's bringing the problems to light in order to heal you. Doing the same thing, bringing the stuff that's hidden to light, but for an entirely different purpose, a redemptive purpose, one that's going to bring life and wholeness and healing. And I think that's what Paul's got in mind here when he says, don't participate in the deeds of darkness. Instead, expose them. He says it's, we're not even to talk about the unfruitful works of darkness that we see around them. Instead, expose them. It's shameful, verse 12, it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. How are the lives and the deeds of the people around us going to be exposed in the light? By our own lives of light, shedding light on them. How are the lives of your friends going to be exposed by light? By seeing light that comes from you. Those of us who know Jesus and are following him. It says light brings exposure to heal, but then it does something even more interesting. Look at verse 13 and 14. 
Verse 13 makes, makes perfect sense, I think. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. When you walk into a dark room and turn on the flashlight looking for something, it comes to light, right? The light shines on it and you see it, okay? But look at verse 14. Anything that becomes visible is light. Okay, Paul just left his high school physics behind, okay? We're with him on the first part. Anything you expose, it, it gets lit up. But then he says anything that light falls on actually becomes light. What's he saying? Then when the Holy Spirit brings this light, maybe through one of us, into someone's life, into our lives, it doesn't just expose it. It doesn't just light it up. It actually changes us. It actually transforms us. This light that the Holy Spirit sheds into our life came to bring real change. What's he saying? The gospel doesn't just lay our hearts bare. It gives us new hearts. And this is good news for everyone with a disordered sexuality, the context that Paul's talking about right here. For those of us whose lives are running off the rails right now, what does Paul say? This light comes in to expose you in order that it might heal you and transform you. To those of us who are following Jesus, we see parts of our lives that are still running off the rails, that we're still running for darkness, for cover. This gospel brings light not only to expose us, which it does, but to change us. This is a light that converts, that brings a change, that actually does what Paul's been talking about all along makes us into new people. And if that's really true, then there's really hope for us in the middle of all our disorderedness of every kind. All this stuff that's lurking in the dark, what does Paul say? The Holy Spirit would bring light on that in our lives to expose it, not to leave us exposed, but to leave us healed. So my hope for us is that the Holy Spirit will continue to do that good work in our lives. Keep us from hiding in our sin that he might really come and bring light and life and change. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do not simply speak what is true about us, but you make something new true about us. You don't simply expose our sin in order to destroy us, but for us, your people, you expose our sin that we might know more of you, that we might be healed, that we might be forgiven, that we might turn away from everything that distracts us from you. Father, we pray that you would come and bring sanity into this disordered part of our life, our sexuality. May we respond to your good work in our lives, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue our worship. Let's stand together and sing, Jesus cast a look